Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted May 24, 2021, titled, How to Survive an Evangelist Ambush, Todd Friel Response. There you are, minding your own business, just enjoying the day without actively believing in a god, when suddenly you're accosted by a ray comfort. And Jesus said, if you look with lust, commit adultery in the heart. Have you ever looked at a guy with lust? <laughs> a Kirk Cameron. But I say to you, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her. Oh, we do a little talk. Oh, yeah? Or maybe a Todd Friel. Todd! Oh, I'm sorry, just reading my Bible and praying. That interesting, huh? Please watch this witness encounter with a young agnostic. Why? You're going to bump into an agnostic. Look out, agnostics. Christians are looking to bump into you and call it a witness encounter. And they're not just going to apologize like a good Canadian. Todd is here with advice that will dismantle agnosticism and it'll replace it with the truth of Christianity. Don't let Todd and his minions dismantle your lack of faith. Stick around, pay attention, and I'll teach you the skills and techniques to survive an evangelism ambush. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. After years trapped indoors, limited to harassing non-believers online and through the courts, radio host apologist Todd Friel is equipping his army for hand-to-hand spiritual combat, and they're coming for the agnostics. This booklet, Solving the God Puzzle, it will dismantle agnosticism and it'll replace it with the truth of Christianity. We'll give you as many copies as you promised to give away. Now meet Cole. All right. So the video starts after history student Cole has already been conversation trapped by Todd. So our lessons today will focus on how to escape, not how to avoid capture, which is always preferable. May I ask what religion are you? Uh, I'm an agnostic. You're an agnostic, but you called it a religion. That's fascinating. When it comes to conversations with a seasoned evangelist, precision is key. When Cole said, I'm an agnostic, that was a casual way of saying, I don't follow any religions, for I don't hold that God exists. In much the same way, I could ask a stranger, what is your favorite meat to eat? And if they reply, I'm a vegan, they're intending to communicate that they don't eat meat at all. They aren't subconsciously admitting that vegetables are meat. This is a dishonest communication tactic of non-generosity by Todd that he pulls out instantly. Of course, all of this is complicated by the fact that people can hold to religions that don't posit a deity. So one could be an agnostic and in a religion. For precision, if someone asks, What religion are you? Say that you don't have a religion. Stats keepers have started calling such people nuns. N-O-N-E-S, or people of no religion. You can then add the agnostic part for flavor afterward, if you're so inclined. Let's see if Cole can recover. Well, okay, it's not exactly a religion. It's more of just kind of a, like, kind of a mindset. 
not specifically really a religion. Worldview might have been a better word, but Cole should be back in the game. Yeah, I, I find when I meet agnostics, they, they kind of pick that slot because it's kind of safe harbor. It's not rejecting God, but it's not embracing God. It's kind of that yeah. hinterland. Here, Todd is left unchallenged in his base assumption that people can choose their beliefs. Agnostics pick that spot, in his view. Of course, people can choose the kind of information and opinions they will expose themselves to, but they cannot choose what they become convinced of and what they don't. Don't believe me? Choose to believe that there is a purple chicken on your lap right now. Or choose to not believe in gravity. Were you able to actually make such choices and have them stick in your belief system? Of course you weren't. Now, an agnostic may be fully content and not bother pursuing a more conclusive personal answer to the God question. This may be the kind of attitude Todd is painting as safe harbor, but I think it's more out of a lack of relevance or lack of information than a plot to keep possible gods placated. What if we pick the wrong religion? Every week we're just making God madder and madder. Is that where you're kind of parked? I'd say I'm slightly more on the God maybe real side, but also there's also some belief, oh, if he's not real, then, you know, I guess I'm prepared for that. By leaning toward a God existing, Cole has inadvertently avoided the entire part of the script where Todd complains about supernatural bias. That'll need to be a separate future lesson for the non-God-leaning crowd. So what do you think then, Cole, is the bar or the standard of proof to demonstrate that God exists that you would need in order to say, yeah, I'm not an agnostic anymore. I know that God exists. This is a reasonable question, but it is equally reasonable to not have a specific answer. In fact, the way scientific theories work is that they are never proven, only potentially disproven. That is to say, a proposition must be falsifiable in order to coherently have proof. Because each evangelist may have a different notion of God, I'd recommend you ask what falsifiable properties their God has. From there, you could imagine the kind of evidence. But warning, the Christian God generally lacks falsifiability. So this question quickly becomes meaningless. I'd say that's kind of a hard thing because it's kind of hard to know how. Because, like, say, say if something big were to happen and there was some sort of proof, like, say, like some some godlike thing came down and actually showed proof, then yeah. Not a strong answer from Cole. If God gave proof, that would be proof of God. But it's not the worst answer either. A lot of times I will say, an all-knowing God would know what kind of evidence I need, even if I don't. What about eyewitness testimony that God came down and revealed himself? The trouble with a miracle is that it's definitionally the least likely thing. And someone either lying or being mistaken are both very likely things. All things being equal, the miracle won't be most probable. Well, I'm not totally sure about that because, like, it could be just someone says that and, like, yeah. you know, if one or two people say it, you can't just take their word for it. Like, it could right. it could be just be saying that for, like, publicity or something, especially nowadays. Yeah. No, true. Uh, publicity, nefarious, intense. Right. That's a roundabout way of saying that a witness could be lying. Unfortunately, Cole doesn't cover the other base, being mistaken. Let me see, though, if you would accept this as your level of proof. I'm a Christian. Okay. So here, here would be the level of proof that I would lay before you. 
based on your terms, if God would come down and reveal himself. The Bible says that God did come down 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. Even if we take the Bible as eyewitness testimony, though most of it most certainly is not eyewitness testimony, it's the same problem I just expressed. It's more likely to be lies or mistakes than miraculous. By the way, as an, as an historian, do you believe that he's an actual historical figure? I do believe he existed, yes. I believe he's a real person. With this, Cole has avoided another lengthy side conversation about the historicity of Jesus. If you value your time, as well as your intellectual honesty, and if you're uncertain that the legend of Jesus was inspired by an actual person, I still encourage you to avoid the rabbit trail by saying, for the sake of this conversation, let's assume that he was. You can always circle back and argue about the historicity if you want to. I believe he did gain a large following, like the Bible says. I just am not, I'm pretty skeptical on whether he actually was the son of God or anything. I'm curious as to when Cole thinks Jesus gained this large following. I'm skeptical that it happened before Jesus' death, but I suppose it's undeniable that he gained a large following afterwards. That's not important right now. Fair enough. So, Jesus Christ claimed to be the son of God. We don't know that. We have anonymous claims from decades after the fact that he did. Conceding that a human may have inspired the Jesus legend isn't the same as accepting the uncorroborated elements of the legend. Around here, we point out that this claim is for the Bible tells me so. Fully God, fully human being. When scholars read the letters of Paul and the earliest written gospel, Mark, in isolation and without importing later ideas, they're not convinced that the authors thought of Jesus in this way. A strong case can be made that they thought Jesus was a human granted some divinity, or something divine with partial temporary humanity. In any case, this is unclear and... Who did miracles, signs, and wonders, not just like leg lengthenings and parlor tricks, but dead people were brought to life. Lame people walked, the blind saw, the deaf they heard. So he did some real genuine organic miracles. That Jesus did miracles is entirely... There is a passage in Josephus' history calling Jesus a doer of wonderful works. But that is almost unanimously rejected as a later forged insertion, not original to the text. Now, we won't enter into that debate here, but many scholars agree that that passage was interpolated or adapted later on. The biggest miracle was the resurrection from the dead. Right. Dying on a cross three days later after he just got ripped to shreds. You know, they whip you with cat and nine tails and then hang you on a tree. He really died. If Jesus was human, then he died. Sure. He really rose from the dead, and he was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Oh, no, no. What we have is a single reference, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul passes along an anonymous story that he heard about Jesus being seen by hundreds of people. No names, no details, no reports from any of them. No mention again in the Gospels or by any early Christian writer. A story about hundreds of witnesses isn't the same as having hundreds of witnesses. Now, here's where this moves from the realm of a bunch of people saying what they believe and what they think you should believe. These are people who saw him rise from the dead. In the face of such a claim, you should ask what people specifically. 
what are their names? There's only one record in history of a person claiming to have seen risen Jesus firsthand, and that's Paul, who saw him years later in what he describes as a vision, not as a physical body. If Todd's case rests on eyewitnesses, I think it's reasonable to ask who they are and how we know they saw anything. And when confronted with the threat of death, if they would not recant their beliefs, they refused. There's no record anywhere of any eyewitnesses of Jesus being offered a chance to recant their beliefs. So how can we know this is true? When Paul and Peter were killed, it seems they were scapegoats for Nero's fire rather than killed for what they believed. James, the brother of Jesus, was a political murder. If Todd had stories of refusals to recant, this might mean something, but he doesn't. It's one thing for people to say, I believe because of what I've heard. It's another thing to say, I believe because of what I've seen. Again, we don't have a single first-hand report of anyone claiming to have seen risen Jesus. It's hearsay and stories only. The disciples saw Jesus die and they saw him rise from the dead. So when they were threatened with execution. Again, ask which disciples saw risen Jesus. What are their names? How do we know they believed it? How do we know they were out preaching? How do we know they were threatened with execution? Most of the 12 disappear entirely from reliable history at the point of Jesus' death. They said, we can't recant because we saw it. We know it to be true. Ask what the source for this is. There are no records of any of the 12 disciples being offered a chance to recant. Why would men, not, not a single one of them, recant their testimony that Jesus rose from the dead because they saw him? I'm being repetitive because Todd is being repetitive. We have no idea if any of them were even offered a chance to recant. If they were, maybe they were recanting left and right. We don't know. We don't even have first-hand reports from any of the disciples that they believed it. For all we know, most of them went back to secular pre-Jesus lives. So they were crucified upside down. They had their heads cut off. They were dipped in oil because they couldn't recant. For any such martyr horror stories... Ask your interlocutor for their source for this information. The most comprehensive modern study of the fate of the apostles is Christian apologist Dr. Sean McDowell's dissertation called The Fate of the Apostles. Was any eyewitness dipped in oil? A third century report claims that John was, but that he emerged completely unharmed and then lived to a natural death. Dr. McDowell calls this an incredible story that must be received with caution in a passage that may have been invented. The claim that Peter was crucified upside down is also 3rd century, open to doubt, and the evidence is simply inconclusive. Great for shock value, but not so great for fact-checking. People can easily fact-check this. Yeah, who has the time? Keep reading. We have that testimony called the Bible, an eyewitness account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None of the Gospel writers claim to be eyewitnesses. Even the most conservative evangelical will admit the authors of Mark and Luke were not eyewitnesses, and mainstream scholarship rejects the traditional authorship of Matthew and John. Cole should ask Todd what makes him think the Gospels are eyewitness accounts. So now, I think it's fair to ask your questions. Did they have a nefarious intent? 
right? Well, I don't think their intent would have been, you know, necessarily nefarious. They could have had very good intentions. I just think there is the possibility that they just may have been misled or didn't really know all the facts. I don't think their intentions were nefarious, though, at all. Well said, Cole. We don't need to posit that the gospel writers were dishonest. It's equally possible they were merely wrong, sincerely misled. Let's try to imagine this is about Jesus Christ publicly crucified. Right. So like in a public place like this, hung yes. up, died, put into a tomb. Three days later, they saw him and hundreds of people saw him and witnessed this. What might they have been confused about? Well, like Todd, early believers may have accepted stories about a tomb when there was no tomb. They may have accepted stories about hundreds of witnesses when there were not, in fact, hundreds of witnesses. Now, from what I understand, the Bible's written, I believe, several hundred years officially after his death. Oh, that's a stumble by Cole. The books that are canonized in the New Testament are generally agreed to have been written between 20 and 100 years after Jesus' death. Not immediate by any stretch, but the predator may pounce on this mistake. That's, that's, that brings up a field of study that you may be interested in as a historian. It's called textual criticism. Okay. And this is for the Bible, and this is for any book in, in, in ancient times, where individuals study how true, how accurate a book is based on three criteria. When it was when it was written, the number of manuscripts that we have and the age of the manuscripts that we have. Kind of. Textual criticism is more the pursuit of reconstructing an original text from disparate later copies. Not so much an attempt to provide an accuracy assessment. When it was written and the age of the manuscript are the same thing. Not two things. But that is a factor in such reconstructions. So for instance... You believe Julius Caesar had some Gallic Wars, correct? Yes, because they have been heavily documented. Well, actually, the documentation for Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars goes basically like this. The earliest manuscript we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars is about 900 years after the fact. Lest Todd's wording is confusing, the literary work, the commentaries on the Gallic Wars, credited to Julius Caesar, was written shortly after the events described. The earliest remaining copy is from 900 years later. And there are other sources for the events. And my recollection of the number of manuscripts, I believe we have dozens of them, dozens of manuscripts written 900 years. So here's here's when Caesar lived and did his, his, his little warring, 900 years later and a few dozen manuscripts. And yet historians go, that's pretty good. That's a pretty reliable text that we have based on 900 years separation and dozens of manuscripts. If by reliable you mean accurately copied, then sure. Historians do not agree at all to what extent what is written reflects reality. The New Testament, we have manuscripts and partials and fragments within the first century. This was very carefully worded to potentially mislead. There are no manuscripts actually from the first century. There are just four or so fragment scraps of manuscripts from within a hundred years of their time of writing, depending on how late you're willing to admit they were written. And these fragments are tiny, the size of credit cards. And there are about 5,600 of them. That is straight up incorrect as phrased. According to preeminent manuscript researcher and devout Christian, Dan Wallace, those approximately 5,600 Greek manuscript fragments are from the first 1,500 years, not from the first 100 years. And according to researcher Eldon J. Epp, 96% of these manuscripts 
are from the 8th century or later, which is the same 900 years that Todd was complaining about for the Gaelic Wars. That means, now track carefully with this, that the Bible, even secular people will agree, is the most accurate book in antiquity. If by accurate, you mean well-preserved. Not if you mean that the information in them is true. Now, that doesn't mean they're true. Right. There you go. Again, the distinction between it's accurate versus true. Because you brought up the issue of textual criticism. Notice that Cole didn't bring up textual criticism. It was Todd who did. Don't let your interlocutor put an argument in your mouth. That these books, maybe it was passed, you know, transmitted like the telephone game, or they made some changes along the way. Well, no, they're actually completely accurate as to what was written down 2,000 years ago. Again, Cole didn't mention a telephone game, and the telephone game objection is about the 30 or more years between when the events happened and when the stories being passed along orally were written down. Again, don't let someone put a poorly constructed argument in your mouth. But it still raises the question, is what they wrote down true? And that brings us back then to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why would these men lie? Why would they mislead even unwittingly if this is a life and death issue? Well, to lie unwittingly is to be passing along information you believe to be true. So there's no need to explain why they would pass it along, even in a life and death context. They believed it to be true. That's the misled part of lying or misled. Because to believe in Christ in those days was to deny emperor worship, which meant your execution. So if you confess that Christ is Lord instead of Nero or Caligula is Lord, you'd be killed. Which points only to sincerity, not to correctness. And that's what they said. That's what they asked of their followers. Again, you should ask who said such things. What were their names? How do we know they were eyewitnesses? Since we have no first-hand reports at all from eyewitnesses to pre-ascension resurrected Jesus. So they had nothing to gain financially. They lost their wealth. They lost their livelihoods. There's no indication that any of the disciples had wealth of any kind. According to the stories, most were fishermen. And being an itinerant preacher would certainly be an appealing profession to some over returning to the back-breaking labor of fishing. They lost their lives, they lost their wives, they lost their children because they saw it. Who did? What were their names? What is your source? I'm unaware of any record of any eyewitnesses losing wives or children. So you put those two things together, the accuracy of the Bible, and the eyewitness accounts that are recorded there. And I think you have a pretty powerful case that Christianity is the story of God coming down to earth. By now you're noticing that Todd is claiming eyewitness accounts without supporting evidence. And he's claiming that preservation is somehow related to truthfulness. Todd may think this is a powerful case, but you should not. So that you could know who he is. And boom, suddenly it just ends. I guess we'll never find out if Cole became a Christian, or if he ever escaped this conversation with his intellectual honesty intact. But now you're better equipped to handle the next Todd in your path. And if you want to be equipped against the Greg Kokels, author of the book Tactics, which is a literal instruction manual on how to trip up non-believers in conversation, head over to this video now, and I'll see you over there. Later. Later.